we've uh, been in a picture, a, a series called The Big Picture uh, for this summer, and it's seeking to try to give us a 30,000-foot view of the Scriptures, going from Genesis to Revelation, to see kind of this big story of the Bible, that it would all grow our overall biblical literacy, to, to see that God has been at work and is moving uh, in, in a lot of different directions, but through the Scriptures, there's some main lines that run all the way from the beginning to the end. We're trying to highlight and illuminate those as we walk through this together. Now, up to this point, we've made it through the divided kingdom of Israel. So, starting with creation and Genesis, everything made perfect, Genesis chapter 3 being the fall, which sin tainted and sin came into the world and everything's disrupted. So, things do not happen now as they were meant to and as they will again one day. So, if you have a Bible and you pinch Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and you pinch Revelation 21 and 22 and were to hold that and let it hang down, everything in the middle there is written to how do we live and trust and have worship and walk with God in a broken and fallen world. But it begins in perfection, and it will end in perfection. So we've made it up until this divided kingdom. Now, we take a pause on the kind of the historical narrative of God and His people to enter into a section of just what's called the wisdom literature or the poetical literature in your Bible. And this is the five books, kind of in the middle of how our Old Testament's arranged, where we have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, what's a little bit confusing about the way our Old Testament is arranged is that Job is actually a contemporary, most likely, of Abraham. So, Job lived during the time or even predates Abraham. So, it's actually probably the earliest written book of the Bible, though it doesn't record the earliest historical events of the Bible. That would be Genesis as it goes all the way back to creation, and we hold Genesis being written by Moses, the first five books of the Bible also. That brings us to what we're going to do today, which are small excerpts from some of these wisdom or poetical books. We don't have time to look in depth at all of them because it being my last Sunday, I have totally unrelated stuff to talk about at the end because this is my last chance. So, uh, get comfortable in those really cushioned black chairs. Uh, It might be a long one. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We confess corporately here that uh, we believe the Bible is from you. We believe, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that every word of Scripture is is theopneustos. It's God-breathed. It is divinely inspired. So we trust what's been given to us. And as it's from you, we confess that it's fully truthful and fully authoritative. So we don't bring our opinions to the Bible, but we let you speak to us about what's right and what's wrong, what is pure, what is holy, what we're to do and not to do. And God, as your people, if we disagree with the Bible or disagree with you, we necessarily are always wrong. And so we thank you for communicating to us, for not leaving us without a word. And we pray that this time in your word would be honoring to you, that it would change us, that it would cut us, that our sin, self-centeredness, and our desire to worship ourselves would bleed out, that we would look more and more like your Son. It's in the wonderful, wonderful name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, we're going to begin with two passages from Job. 
Now, Job is the quintessential biblical book on suffering, right? And, and what's amazing about Job is it actually gives us a lot of different perspectives, the same modern-day perspectives and responses people have towards suffering. Job's friends give him in suffering. So, Job, oh, you must have sinned to cause this to happen, or you're not doing enough, or you did something wrong. And Job and, and God go through this dialogue where God brings clarity to no, know that's not why this happened. That's not why this happened. And it's a wonderful dialogue that helps us position ourselves to navigate tragic situations. We begin Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. It's a dialogue between God and Satan. It says this, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. He's a blameless and upright man. He fears God. He turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the works of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The charge that Satan has against Job in this passage is, sure, God, Job's faithful, Job trusts you, and Job worships, but it's conditional. It's circumstantial. God, the only reason that Job does this is because look at all the good things you've done for him. You've blessed him. He's got easy living. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's healthy. Everything's going right for him, God. Of course he worships you. And God says, okay, I give you permission to take away everything but his life. And then Satan goes about and does exactly that. See, the charge against Job is sure. He's fine with God when things are fine with him, but disrupt his circumstances and his faith and trust and worship will follow which is a pretty poignant attack. And it's not one, I think, that we're altogether unfamiliar with. For in our walks, we too could say, it's pretty easy to trust and worship God and, and praise Him and think that He's great and wonderful when things are fine with us and they're well with us. But what about when those things get touched or tweaked or crumble? What about when marriage slips from honeymoon phase into conflict, or kids get sick, or jobs are lost, or mass shootings happen, or Hurricane Katrina happens, or loved ones get like What happens when everything is not well? It, it rises to the surface a reality of either our trust and hope and faith and praise and worship is circumstantial with God doing for us what we want Him to do for us, or it's not. Which incidentally, when Jesus teaches us to pray in, in the Gospels, He begins with praising God, not for anything that God has done, but for who God is in and of Himself. Hallowed be Thy name. Simply because you exist and you are who you are, you're worthy of all praise and all worship. And yet, confessionally, I will tell you, I don't always sync up with that line of praise. 
Sure, I believe God's all-powerful. Sure, I believe that He's all good. I've studied theology formally. I know that those are the right answers. But what happens when circumstances don't feel like that's true? Well, oftentimes, my adoration and praise and desire and motivation and spiritual vibrancy fall in line with my circumstances. And is that true for us? The hard reality is whatever steals our worship and adoration from God is the thing that we adore and worship. And that doesn't mean there aren't seasons for grief, certainly, and for sadness, certainly. But at the end of the day, whatever you fill in the blank with, if X happens to me, I don't know if I could walk with God anymore, X is actually our functional God. And I will tell you, from me to you, I, and I hope I never have to find out, I can't answer with any integrity what my response would be if something happened to my family. I would love to say that I would keep trusting and, and keep walking and know that God is so good, but man, you mess with my wife or James or Gabe, That'd be so hard. I want to stay faithful. I'd want to stay hoping. And that challenges me in real time to make sure that Shanna and James and Gabe are in no way a functional Savior for me. That I love them but do not worship them. That I adore them but I do not let them determine what's true about God. That has to be God alone. And if I'm not preparing in real time that hallowed is God's name, I will not be prepared in the tragic times to navigate it with that as my foundational principle. And so what would that be for us? That if God did X, I don't know if I would walk with Him anymore. See, that is a deep-rooted heart issue that we battle now that we let God uproot now so that we know at the end of the day we'll cry out, hallowed is thy name. So Satan attacks Job with this idea that hey, your faith circumstantial. Let me rip away everything you hold dear and then I will also rip God away from you. Now Job walks faithfully. He questions God. He's angry. He's sad. Like there's room for that in the Bible. We'll see that in the Psalms. It, that God likes his, his real people in real time. He's big enough for that. But look how, how Job kind of concludes at the end of the day. For we could ask, how could Job keep hope going amidst everything that he went through? Look at Job 19, 25 through 27. He says this, for I know, I know. And oftentimes we hear knowledge and we think intellectual. And biblically, most of the time, knowledge is experiential. So don't miss that. So here's what Job says, I know, I've tasted, I've experienced, I'm fully convinced, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, that's physical death, yet in my flesh I shall see God, that's His resurrected body, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. It's so great a thought. 
So what keeps Job going amidst horrific, tragic circumstances? It is his unwavering experiential knowledge and trust that his Redeemer is alive. And not only that his Redeemer is alive, but he will see him one day in a new body, on a new earth, when everything that previously happened to him can never happen again. That's Job's thought. That's Job's hope. That Job is saying, yeah, it's terrible, and I wish none of that would have ever happened to me, but I can keep going because my Redeemer is alive, which incidentally is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central point of the Christian faith. If Jesus did not literally and physically raise from the dead, all of us are hopeless. And Paul would call us fools beyond fools. Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced that Jesus walked out of that grave as a historical reality? If he didn't, everything falls apart. Now, the Bible's convinced that he did. I think we can make some historical arguments that are pretty convincing that he did. None of that matters if you, in your heart of hearts, are not convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead and that your Redeemer lives. So there's the book of Job, kind of bookended for you. There's a lot more in there. There's maybe even a passage about dinosaurs, which is kind of cool. But it's suffering. Suffering. How do we deal with it? How do we keep hope going? From Job, we move then to the book of Psalms. Now, Psalms is, is is a collection of poetry. And there are a lot of different types of psalms. We're not going to go into all the different types, but get you a little good basic book. There's a book called Handbook on the Psalms that would be really helpful to help you break down the different types. But overall, I think Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite writers, authors, pastors, sums up what the psalms give us in the Scriptures. Here's what he says. Everything that a person can possibly feel, experience, and say is brought into expression before God in the psalms. Everything. So we see people go through deep anguish, great joy, fear, anger, questioning God, trusting God, worshiping God, not being certain that God is going to come through. All of these things come to us through the Psalms. I love the Psalms because the Psalms are saturated with real-time humanity, with the things that we think, the things that we feel. They give us a vocabulary of prayer and praise to God. And if you've always wondered, man, I want to pray, I want to enrich my prayer life, I just don't know what to say, start by praying psalms back to God. It is the vocabulary of prayer and worship in the Scriptures. And when you can situate the psalms, and we'll do one together in a minute, when you can situate them where Scripture allows us to know what else is happening in the circumstance of the psalmist, they take on even a deeper meaning. So look at Psalm 4 with me. Now, to situate this, Psalm 4 is written when King David, so by King David, when King David is being pursued by his son Absalom, and Absalom is trying to kill him. So here's a father whose son wants to murder him so that his son can have the throne. 
So Absalom knows the kingdom will pass to Solomon if it's David's choice. So Absalom wants to murder his own father. So this is David, king, hiding because his own son seeks to kill him. Here's what he writes, Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. I'd imagine he's having to tell himself that a lot. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices to put your light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But the reality is David was not safe. If we just look at, take God out of the picture and look at his human circumstances, he was anything but safe. He was on death row at the hand of his own son, moving in stealth, making sure nobody knows where he is so Absalom can't find out that Absalom would come and kill him. Logistically speaking, he is anything but safe, and yet David says, I lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. How can we have peace amidst fear? The only way to have peace amidst fear is to know that one higher than us guards us. That we can rest because God doesn't. That we can sleep because He won't. That we dwell in safety because at the end of the day, His hand will stand between us and anything that He does not want to come our way. And here David, pursued by his own son, who wants to kill him, says, people are lying about me. They're shaming me. My reputation is being destroyed. And my son is trying to murder me. God, you have given me so much joy. And I will sleep tonight because you make me safe. See, that's what the Psalms give us. A vocabulary, a real experience, a situation where we go, I'm so fearful, I'm so scared of what might happen, God. How am I ever supposed to rest? How am I ever supposed to stop being anxious? How am I ever... And David says... Well, you can rest because God won't. That He's got you. Fast forward to the New Testament. This wonderful resurrected promise of Jesus is that I'll be with you. That I'll be with you. Because that's Psalms. You go through them. It's good. Get you a study Bible. They'll oftentimes situate the Psalms for you. Let you know what's going on in the, the psalmist's life at this time. It'll add depth and richness to the words that he's writing. Now, after Psalms comes Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom statements, but it can be confusing because oftentimes you'll find two Proverbs that seemingly contradict themselves. Okay, now, we work with a, a presupposition about the Bible that 
being from God, if it is from God, it's completely truthful. If something's completely truthful, it actually can't contradict itself. So what do we do if a proverb says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, and then a proverb over here says, answer a fool according to his folly? Do these things not contradict themselves? Well, they don't if you understand what proverbial literature is. They are general wisdom statements. Proverbs are not always supposed to be absolutes. Now, some are. So, you read the Proverbs about the adulterous woman, and she has, she has poison on her lips, so it appears to be honey. That's always true. Always true. But there are situations. Sometimes you don't answer a fool according to his folly. Sometimes you do answer a fool according to his folly. That's why Proverbs begins with Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we're not seeking from God Himself what to do, we can't navigate those times uh, with wisdom about which is the proper response. So, Proverbs is a collection of these statements, general life wisdom. They come to us, and that's why you read Proverbs, you're like, man, that doesn't feel connected. It's not always meant to connect. It's meant to be uh, statements about wise living, the first being this, Proverbs 1.7, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Which means we cannot actually make wise, informed decisions unless we take them to God. That's why every, if we profess Christ and we're, we're, we're trying to walk with God, every decision we make should be bathed in prayer. Seeking from Him, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me say? Who would you have me sit by today at church? How can I love this person? What does your word say is true? And incidentally, with the cultural pressure points of the church and culture uh, only being ratcheted up and only becoming more and more tense, when we're faced and torn with what to believe, for the Christian, we have to go to the foundational question of what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say? Not what does culture say, not where do my emotions want to go, not what's going to make me a little more acceptable to society. If I could just let go of this belief and just embrace this and I won't be marginalized as much, life will go easier for me. That's not the option for us. In fact, in our conversations with one another, in our discipleship relationships, in our small groups, one of the questions that should permeate our thinking is anytime we try to reach a decision or we've resolved to do something or we have a thought, it's a wonderful question to ask each other, now what passage of Scripture is informing your thinking? Because that will push us. That will call us to be rooted and saturated in God's Word. And we go round and round in circles when it's just the opinions of two people going back and back and forth with one another unless we have a sure, more certain word from God. It's a wonderful question to ask each other. Okay, I hear what you're saying. Help me understand what passage of Scripture is informing your thinking. That'll be such great accountability for us. So that's Proverbs, wisdom statements. Let's keep going to Ecclesiastes. Now, weirdly might be my favorite book of the Bible. Okay, Ecclesiastes is the Bible's book of philosophy on life. 
I love Ecclesiastes because it puts language to the despair and vanity of a lot that we experience on earth. And I love that God gives us that in His own created world. So you read most of Ecclesiastes, and the beginning starts, vanity of vanity, vanity of vanity, vanity of vanity. It goes through all these illustrations of, okay, well, it rains, and then that goes into a river, and then that goes into an ocean, and then it evaporates, and then it rains again. He's just saying, life seems to be this just circular thing. The same things just keep happening. It's mundane. What's the point of all of this? So God puts a book in the Bible to question, what's the point of all this? And I love that. And so you see the author of Ecclesiastes say, I was so despairing, life wasn't fulfilling. And so I decided, you know what? Surely fulfillment's found in knowledge. So I'm going to learn everything there is to learn. I'm going to be the smartest, uh, wisest person on earth. And once I get there, I'll be fulfilled. And he does that and he says, vanity of vanity, I'm just as empty. And he says, okay, surely, surely it's pleasure. So I'm going to drink as much as I want. I'm going to eat as much as I want. I'm going to have sex as much as I want. Nothing I desire I'm going to withhold from myself. And as long as I'm doing that, surely I'll feel meaningless, sense and meaning of life. And he does it, and he says, vanity, meaningless. He says, okay, maybe then, maybe it's in working hard. So I'm going to get an awesome career. And I'm going to advance, and I'm going to get promoted, and I'm going to surpass all my coworkers, and I'm going to make all this money. And he says, vanity of vanities. So he goes on through the book, and he finally concludes, well, actually, work and pleasure in the right context, so sex inside of the marriage covenant, alcohol not abused, not leading to drunkenness, like food that tastes good but not being gluttonous. He says, actually, all of that stuff is good and enjoyable if done in relationship with God. And what he does is he gets us so despairingly lost that we have to conclude there's something more and that something is God. It's the Bible's philosophy on here's what life is like without God and here's how enjoyable life is with God. And that's the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. And I love it, but my favorite passage, Ecclesiastes 11, 3 through 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. This is my hands-down favorite. If I ever have to give a devotional somewhere, but you know, somebody says, hey, will you come talk for 10 or 15 minutes? And in my mind, I'm thinking, what a waste of time. I can't do anything in 10 or 15 minutes. This is where I go to. This is where I go to. Look at what he says. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there will lie. You know what all verse 3 is saying? Reality is real. That's all it's saying, right? So if you go walk through the woods and a tree falls, there it is. It didn't actually fall anywhere else. It fell right there. And you see it and you know it. And you can look at that tree and you can say, I wish that tree would have fallen over there. I wish that tree never would have fallen at all. I wish that tree wasn't a tree. But the reality is there's the tree and there's where it fell. 
And why do I love that as a devotional text? Because figuratively, we've all had incredible trees crash down in our life. Trees of sadness, trees of abuse, trees of fear, trees of perverse sin, trees of tragedy. And so many times we want to hide from those like they're not real. But gang, the tree fell. And no, how, no matter how much you wish it wouldn't have, and if we would know your story, how much we wish it wouldn't have because it was so painful and so tragic, it doesn't change the fact that it fell. And you can go walk in a different forest, and you can take a different path, but the tree's still down, and it will not magically disappear. So what the Bible would say is reality is real. It fell. It's a part of you, a part of your experience, a part of your pain. Deal with it. It's one of the most wonderful promises of God being with us is we can now walk up to that tree. You know the only way I grew up on a farm in Alabama, you know the only way that that tree gets moved is when you get the chainsaw First of all, you sit through your dad's safety talk, and then you get the chainsaw, <laughs> and you cut it up. And gang, it hurts to get cut. And the pain often gets worse before it gets better. But once the tree's cut up, and once it's hauled off, guess what? The tree is not there anymore. So what is that for you? Trees of hidden sin, unconfessed sin, pain and tragedy, fear, something you've never told someone. You ignoring it and acting like it didn't happen is not equivalent to it not having happened. It happened. And the wonderful promise about the resurrected power of Jesus is everything we need is in us by Him to walk through it. And Okay, so where the tree falls... There it lies. Last verse. Verse 4 says this. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. This is the kind of person that will never do anything because if they try to do something, something might go wrong. This is when we get stuck in these perpetual states of fear. Of, ah, I'm not going to apply for that job. I'm not going to do the interview. I'm not going to get in that relationship. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Because if I do that, then these things might happen. I could potentially possibly get hurt. This might theoretically go wrong, and I would rather insulate myself from anything ever going wrong and never try anything. Well, the great misnomer in that is you're not in control of that. Hardship will find you, even if you lock yourself away in a room somewhere. It'll find you. We're not meant to live lives of fearful expectation of the worst thing that could possibly happen and then never do anything. If that was the case, my wife and I would have never, ever chosen to have kids. You know what? The minute we got pregnant, there was a great opportunity for our hearts to get shattered. We have to trust God with it. And the minute I got married, there's an awesome opportunity for me to be abandoned, to be hurt, the same for my wife. 
but that doesn't keep us from going for it. There's promise to be comfort in the pain, but we don't sit back and say, well, because something might possibly go wrong, we're never going to do anything. That's what verse 4 is written towards. And the last book, which we're not going to get into in detail, is Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is sort of the marriage and dating and sexual manual of the Bible, which is why the church actually should be the group having the most robust conversations about sex and sexuality. Do you know why? Because God invented it as a good gift. Now, He regulated it because like anything, if you misuse it, you'll break it. But God never says it's bad or dirty, never says it's wrong. He just says it needs to be done within certain parameters because when done in certain parameters, the joy, the experience of it is escalated beyond anything of our wildest imagination. In Song of Solomon, in very great detail, now get you a good commentary and you'll start to blush about what Song of Solomon is actually saying. It talks about parts of the body. It talks about sexual experiences and it calls them good inside the covenant of marriage. It's an awesome book. It really is. But it's so graphic that actual rabbis would not let Jewish men read it until a certain age. And it's in our Bible. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Right? That's from God. So that's a Song of Solomon for us. Those are your wisdom poetical books. Five of them, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Next week, uh, Brad's with us to take us through the ex- exile. The exile, right? All right. Good luck, brother. <laughs> Some heavy trotting. Um, so I'm going to transition now. I just got a few passages, then a few points, and then as the great play-by-play announcer, God rest his soul. He died my senior year in college. The voice of the Auburn Tigers, Jim Fife, would always say, my time's up, and I thank you for yours. But before we get there, this is going to be emotional. Right? I was a train wreck in Starbucks writing the sermon. I'll be a train wreck delivering the sermon. Which, incidentally, let me just tell you something. There is a dude in Starbucks this week, sits down at the table with me, and starts talking to the girl right here and says, I just want you to know, I just came from the doctor, and I've got the flu. And I looked at that dude like, Are you, you're seriously sitting right here saying that? So I packed all my stuff up right in front of him and moved to the other part of the coffee shop. And they're like, i got kids, man. You don't come to a public place with the flu. Oh, what is wrong with you? <clears throat> That's not in the Bible, but that might be from the Lord. I'm not sure. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. These are just a few things that have been passed down to me. I've had the privilege of being discipled by some wonderful, wonderful men. I try to soak up everything that they tell me. Uh, I don't always approximate it into my life, as you can imagine. But here's some of the more poignant things that I try to carry with me uh, along the way. And the first is this. My pastor in Memphis, Cole Huffman, would always tell me, So, Jamie, about 85% of life is lived in the mundane. Now, that doesn't mean unimportant, but what his point was, 85% of life is lived in the rhythm of waking up, eating breakfast, going to work, 
handling your responsibility, coming home, going to sleep, do it and all over again. It's the things that are our daily normal responsibilities. So about 85% of your life is going to be made up of these everyday rhythms. And then he said something that, that always sticks with me. He says, what's going to stand out is how faithful you are in the 85%. Now that 15%, we can rally troops to go fight AIDS in Africa, which is a great cause. We can rally to all these big social movements. That's the 15%. Everybody gets real excited about that. But everybody wants to go uh, fight social issues, and nobody wants to do the dishes. Nobody wants to serve their roommate. Nobody wants to serve their wife or their husband or change diapers. So I'd echo the same thing to y'all is, will you be faithful in the 85%? Are you a student? Are you, that's your studies. That's your relationship with your professors. That's the honor you show them. That's the love you show your classmates. That's the diligence through which you study. If you have a career, are you excellent in what you do? Are you seeking to thrive, to bless the company? Every person in authority that you're under, we're always called to make their life easier, even when they don't make ours easier. Can you be faithful in the mundane 85% of the rhythms of life? That's why if you read the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters is this unbelievable unveiling of theology. And so you get to chapter 4, and you're expecting like, okay, so let's all board and go to the unreached people groups of the world because we're going to saturate them with the God. And what does Paul begin chapter 4 with? He begins with domestic responsibilities. Will you handle your business at home? Will you handle your business at work? All this theology. And then Paul says, but can you do the 85%? Will you be faithful? And I didn't coin this. Eugene Peterson did. But I've always, and I've failed. My wife knows it. I've tried to repent. But I've always tried to operate, even as one of your pastors, from the mindset of, if I have to fail at home to succeed as a pastor, I've already failed as a pastor. Okay? If I'm not faithful... In my 85%, I have no platform or integrity to ever stand up to you and open the Word of God. Because that's the first thing, is faithfulness in the everyday rhythms of life. The second one is just to encourage you towards simple rhythms of God's Word, prayer, and discipleship. I think it's irreplaceable. There's nothing to replace us just sitting down and reading huge chunks of the Scriptures and just soaking up God's Word and pursuing Him in prayer and pouring our lives into others and having others pour their lives into us. It's these simple rhythms of God's Word and prayer and discipleship. And those don't always feel significant, but that's because we attach the world's definition of success into our walks with God. And you can't measure everything. You can't qualify or quantify everything, but you can be faithful, and you can walk, and you can love God and His Word and prayer and making disciples. The third thing is we all need to constantly seek to be people defined by faith and repentance, the two landmark distinguishing characteristics of the Christian. Faith 
is the short term for the longer learning from our sins. And these should be the things that bookend our walks with God and each other. Faith and repentance. And I've already touched on this, so I'll be quick. <clears throat> but it's just bringing to light the reality that we're in a time of great cultural tension. And some of us are feeling the temptation to let the values of culture become the values of the church. And I'm going to exhort you and myself to be strong and courageous, to trust that God's ways are best even when they marginalize you, that God's ways are higher even when they create difficulty for you, that God's Word is true and we're to stand upon it with unwavering conviction even when it costs us something. So know the climate we're in. Be strong and courageous. And then lastly, I just wanted to let you know, that I love you. That I think that the vocational call of pastoring in the last three years that I've been able to do that here is the greatest vocational privilege that I could have. And I've tried my darndest to be faithful. And when I haven't, I need you to forgive me. But I'm so thankful for you. I'm proud of you. I want to close our time before communion with my favorite little prayer in the Bible. And I'd love to speak it over you if you'd stand with me. This comes from the letter of Jude, the last two verses. And I hope you'll hide it in your heart. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, and dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen.